Thank you.
to testone.net here on Mixler.com. I'm the host of Evening Knuckle Dragon. I should maybe adjust things so I can hear myself and then by extension you can hear me. One never knows. That was quite a closer, was it not? That was the knife with Off to On, which is um, from their 2006 album Silent Shout, which was one of the most listened to pieces of music in my life in 2006 and given how often I played it uh, in that year. For my entire life up to that point. But I am, in fact, getting ahead of myself because, as I said, this is Testone. Here on Mixler.com, I'm your host, Jacob Knuckle Dragger. For the last two hours, I've been bringing you the best of beats and beatless as located here in the Happy Valley. Uh, we started out tonight with a <clears throat> real vintage piece of ambient there that was Spice Baron's Future Perfect State Persian Songbird Mix. Now, um... First off, I have too many Chrome tabs open, but that just means today ends in Y. That is from their album, Future Perfect State, which came out all the way back in 1995 on the Mighty Silent Records, which was one of the best underground record label uh, in the United States. Uh, they formed in the uh, early 1980s, I think, or maybe mid-80s, I'm not entirely sure. And Discogs is hell-bent on not showing me. Um, why can you not sort by year, dear Discogs? Yeah, 85 was their first release. And some of their early stuff, I mean, they've always arguably been an ambient label, but some of their early stuff was, I don't know, they would have called it experimental, industrial, maybe some other things like post-industrial at the time, which have varying degrees of, you know, any real meaning here in uh, far-flung 2021. Uh, they shut their doors in the early aughts, um, 
I think like 04 might have been their last release, but then they came back as a web label um, selling flax on Bandcamp, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and whatever other music format you want, but in my world that means flax. Uh, in, I think, 2016, um, they put out some absolutely killer releases during the glory days of 90s ambient, uh, both compilations and entire albums, in this case the one by um, uh, the Spice Barons, uh, I don't know too much about the Spice Barons. It's kind of a one-off. They did that one album in 95. Uh, it's three dudes, Don Falcone, uh, Kim uh, Cascone, uh, and Paul uh, Nyrink. Uh, and um, they've all worked on various projects, and I've literally heard of nothing that uh, any of these people have done other than going down the rabbit hole that is Discogs. And that's the thing about Ambient is... And <clears throat> Stop me if you've heard this before. Ambient is the music that, uh, electronic music that the adults listen to, and that has all sorts of ramifications, not the least of which is the fact that um, one does not want to get into a bidding war on sites like eBay for rare vintage ambient releases because there's always someone out there with deeper pockets than you is going to pay more for that goddamn fax release. Um, or in this case, the Spice Baron. So this one's actually not too bad. It looks like you can get a copy on Discogs for under 30 bucks, which is not bad because the thing has never been repressed. And um, Spice Barons don't exactly have a band camp. And while the label that released the album, Silent, has been relaunched, that doesn't mean they magically have rights for everything they previously released in hard copy. So it's not. it does not have a web release, which is a damn shame because it's a mighty fine ambient album. Very mid-90s, but I mean that in a good way. Um, <clears throat> but... More broadly, as I was talking about ambient being the music for, uh, or composed by and primarily listened to by adults uh, versus um, uh, hyperactive pogoing ravers, is that um, a lot of the people who made ambient, particularly during the um, real uh, explosion of electronic music in the 90s, were musicians who had been doing other things, whether they were post-rock artists or just uh, studio engineers. There's a lot of interesting one-off or short-lived ambient projects that existed in the 90s as produced by people who had been making other kinds of music for a very long period of time, and that's exactly what the case is with the Spice Barons. Uh, <clears throat> Follow the Spice Barons with John Lyell. That was Red Shift 2, which is from his album uh, Planetary Artifacts, uh, which actually is much newer business. That came out um, four years ago, Late February 2017. And the significant thing of that song, it's not the only example tonight, is that it's in, and I had a considerable debate over this, it's either in 3-4 time or 6-8. To me, it feels like 6-8, but it's not like it's got, you know, any real rhythmic elements. It's just got some uh, regular uh, synth pulses, and I would even call it a bass line. It just has some deeper bass tones. The takeaway here is that it's decidedly not in 4-4 time, my uh, tempestuous Teutonic DJ software tractor does not think of anything except for the world as existing in 4-4 uh, time because it has been dialed in to have the same IQ of your average DJ. And um, <clears throat> that means you actually can beat grid it as I did, but it's not really going to line up the way it's meant to line up. And so it ends up being a poor man's polyrhythm when I mix it in with uh, four genuine of 4-4 uh, music. So what I do with that in the case is cheat by starting with a, it beforehand with an ambient track and then following it with uh, Fourth Dimension that was uh, Ionization, which is from the album The uh, Perfect Form, which is more new school ambient. That is from uh, the 
late 2017 album, The Perfect Form. Fourth Dimension is um, uh, a pair of uh, Eastern Europeans, Ser Serbians, in fact. Uh, bear with me here. Uh, Strahinja, Maltik, and Strahinja. I guess apparently they have the same last name. Uh, and this other guy's uh, first name, rather. This other guy's last name, which has completely derailed my ability to parse anything, is Z-D-R-A-V-K-O-V-I-C. Two Serbs from Belgrade. You've heard me say this before, but Eastern Europe, which is not a super populous part of the world, has an incredibly um, disproportionately high number of incredibly talented electronic music artists. They make a whole variety of music from, I don't know, dance floor oriented drum and bass to um, uh, Psytrance and all sorts of variants, not my cuppa, but it's out there, to all sorts of things in the ambient IDM, chill out, down tempo, call it what you will space. And that's exactly what Fourth Dimension are. Um, these fellas, as is in keeping with their Eastern European brethren, even though they've been around since 2013, they have cranked out eight albums, including uh, two in 2017 alone. Uh, this was the second one, uh, Perfect Form. I actually haven't heard the other one, Mind Cycles Remixed. Because <clears throat> as much as I like me some ambient, it takes a long time sometimes to get through, uh, oh, I don't know, the pile of material I already have at my disposal, never mind things that I keep discovering, like Fourth Dimension. But I found a way to work that song in tonight, if nothing else, besides the fact that the track stands on its own, to uh, serve as some musical glue to surround the 6-4 track, or whatever it was, 3-4-6-8 track I wanted to play. Uh, we followed Fourth Dimension with Lackluster. That was one cycle more. That is from the um, uh, Repulsine EP, which came out back in 07 um, on Soulseek Records, which is actually, yes, a record label run by uh, Mir Arbel and his wife Rosalind, um, the people who run um, uh, Soulseek, which is the premier peer-to-peer -peer music application some 19 years and running. I've been using Soulseek since early 2002, and it is to this day the primary way that I find obscure electronic music. Now, if I can buy it for a reasonable price, I probably will, particularly if the artist is a band camp and isn't charging some obscene rate plus, like, I don't know, conversions from euros to US dollars on a given day. But if the price is remotely affordable, and credit where credit is due, most band camp artists make their catalogs uh, quite affordable. Um, I'll buy it, but if you get into things like, you know, where it's a fax release and the CD copy is 128 British pounds plus shipping from Her Majesty's Kingdom, um, <clears throat> that's not happening. Uh, so I can find myself, I have made contacts uh, on Soulseek over the last 19 years. In fact, there might even be one or two of them are listening to the show right now. And um, I have a good number of friends who share spectacularly deep collections of electronic music and other music as well, primarily in flack, which is what I do, of course. Um, <clears throat> and amongst ourselves, we share an awful lot of tunes, which means when it comes to um, uh, underground music, period, Soulseek has kind of been the name for nearly two decades. And I don't think the record label is terribly active anymore. They only did three releases, uh, two in 06 and one in 07. And I actually think Lackluster um, released that um, did a follow-up web release um, later. Um, Lackluster is a, um, uh, 
what country is he from? I'm not entirely sure. Oh, he's uh, Helsinki, so um, that's Finland. He is a Finn. Uh, his name is Essa... Oh, boy. Yuhani. Uh, I'm taking a wild stab at that. R-U-O-H-O. You got me. Uh, he is a Finnish IDM artist. He is rather prolific. He's put out 13 albums uh, in the last 20-something years um, and a disgusting pile of EPs, nearly 30. Uh, I've barely scratched the surface of his music, but I remember getting that one, uh, the uh, Re-Pulsine uh, EP, because it was actually promoted on Soulseek, oddly enough, uh, way back in 07 or 08. Uh, we followed Lackluster with Mono Lake. Uh, that was... Uh, Bicom from, which is on a single as well, but most famously from his 2001 album Cinemascope. Mono Lake, of course, is Mr. Robert Henke. Uh, he used to work with his pal uh, Gerhard uh, Bells. Um, Gerhard now runs Ableton. Uh, and <clears throat> this is substantial because uh, most of the ambient, minimal, down-tempo, dub, techno, glitch business that um, Robert Henke produces and plays live uh, is run through the software Ableton and has been since the late 1990s. Um, they are a pair of nutball Germans who are obsessed with minimal dub everything. Um, Robert's music is, for the most part, very good, but he is kind of hit or miss and oftentimes goes on with something far longer than necessary, including that particular track, uh, Bicom, which, while excellent, um, is nine and a half minutes long and it doesn't need to be but it does work as a amusing uh tool for djing which meant i kept it in the mix fairly long both starting early into lack uh lacklusters uh one cycle more and then starting uh the track i followed it with uh, uh <clears throat> anima i'm guessing a-n-y-m-a free me uh fairly early into it that is not on um discogs by the way um, if you do a search for uh, Anima Free Me on Discogs, you get a bunch of metal releases. But Anima has a band camp, and that's where I got it. And there you go. It's a uh, modern side chill artist. Follow Anima with Mind Soup. With, to me, perhaps the most iconic Mind Soup track. That was Umami from their 2000 album Love Songs for Gifted Children. That was one of my most played songs and most played albums of the late aughts. To me, uh, that really defines the uh, late 2000s. Um, Mind Soup is a collective. Um, they make excellent music. They have done uh, five albums, though they haven't done one in six years, and they're about due to another one. But they maintain a very low profile. They basically just put out their albums. <clears throat> they occasionally appear in a compilation. Not very many. I mean, we're talking in the last uh, 17 years, they've appeared on four compilations. Uh, and they have, like, no social media presence. And I kind of respect that, particularly given how good their music is. Um, but I do wish they just were a little more active both in the studio and letting people know that they were actually uh, producing tunes. Uh, Mr. One Zero himself, or Zero One, rather. Uh, Kevin Dooley uh, is similar in that he maintains a fairly low social media presence. But even he at least maintains a... Um, Facebook page where he'll say, yep, working on a new album, and then a new album shows up, and it's excellent. Mind Soup can't even do that, which is a shame. Followed Mind Soup with um, uh, quite a character indeed. Mr. Edward K. Spell, that was Hey Rain Man, significantly the forest-friendly mix, which is a, I would call it one-off, but this isn't really true anymore, remix, um, <clears throat> which uh, originally uh, appeared... Um, 
in 2005 uh, on uh, an album that he released himself called uh, A Long Red Ladder to the Moon, which is actually a line lifted from the song I played tonight. Um, and actually, the remix is on several versions. I'm not going to say if all. I'm not sure it's on the vinyl version um, of that album. Um, and while Edward Case Bell, of course, is legendary in college radio, indie rock, post-rock, call it what you will, circles, for bloody ever, most primarily because he's part of the legendary Pink Dots, but also his own catalog. Um, in this case, this particular remix came uh, into um, uh, my awareness, not because of that 2005 by Edward Case Bell. There's nothing about Edward Case Bell is he is alarmingly, stupefyingly, uh, I'm going to go as far to say questionably prolific in as much as the guy cranks out the material. And we're just going to say the um, variation in quality of the music that he has produced over the last, I don't know, four-ish decades is so astronomically wide, it's kind of scary. The good stuff is the reason the man has a career, the reason he's a household name on... Uh, I don't know, aging indie rock fans, or call it what you will, synth pop, post rock, uh, new wave. I mean, he's not exactly new wave, but you know, if you go back far enough, and he does, there was far less um, distinction uh, amongst all of those um, up to this current day. Um, and he absolutely, over the last however many decades, has produced material uh, which has stood the test of time uh, and warrants the fame that he has, and then some. But coupled with that is the boatloads of dreck that he shovels out the door along with his better material. And this is not a new phenomenon. The guy has had questionable quality control for <clears throat> the entire time that I've been aware of him, and that's over 30 years at this point. With that said, I don't exactly keep my finger on the pulse of what he's doing for that reason and a hundred others. Uh, that said, in late 06, uh, the Mighty Waveform Records, which is, of course, a label I have mentioned a great many times on this show, and as a matter of fact... Um, one of the absolute best, longest-running American down-tempo labels at this point. They've been at it since 94, 95. Uh, in late 06, they put out a compilation called Chilicious. And I didn't pick it up exactly in 06. But um, at some point, uh, I read an interview uh, on a webpage back when you did such things. And um, <clears throat> the man who founded Waveform Records, whose name is Forrest, more on that in a second, listed two releases that were his absolute favorite on the label. One of them he picked was Delicious, which I thought was a little odd because I had I had bought it at the time, some point in the late 07, or early 07, we'll say. And uh, after listening to it extensively, um, you know, some decent tracks in it, but I put it back in the shelf and got on with my day. I liked the Chris Zippel song on it and the closer by Rudos, which is this brilliant piece of ambient dub. Um, but I came back and gave it a listen, the entire compilation. This was a couple of years later. We'll say the late aughts. I couldn't tell you exactly when. Uh, I listened to, um, I noticed specifically that there was a remix of Edward Case Bell that really stands out on an otherwise fairly um, consistent down-tempo album, uh, or compilation, I should say. Uh, and it's just because it's got the really bizarre vocals and strange uh, arrangement um, of the original, but also it's this weird minimal dubby remix and the remix is actually done by Forrest who is the guy who founded Waveform Records now I'm not saying he picked that compilation because there's a remix by him on it but all of the above is in fact true and it is quite a remix though it is nearly impossible to mix that particular song with anything else and do it seamlessly 
So I spent uh, a good section of the middle part of this week arranging how I was going to work the song in, and that's why I had Mind Soup's Umami, which I don't play terribly often, because while I love the song, I played it a lot, both in my personal life and in um, on my radio show in the late aughts through the very early 2010s, and just as a point of order, we are now in the second year of the 2020s. Um, and uh, I kind of wore it out, you know, but uh, it worked, and nothing else did with what I was trying to do, so I brought in Mind Suits Umami, then Edward K. Spell's Hey Rain Man, the Forest Friendly Mix, and then followed that up with another track that was not 4-4. This one was definitely 6-4, and that was Plaid's Buddy. Uh, that is from their two... No, I'm sorry, 1999 album, Rest Proof Clockwork. Plaid is, of course, a pair of chaps from London named uh, Ed Handley and Andy Turner. They have been making IDM since the very early 1990s. Uh, their first album came out in 91, and it's called, bear with me here, uh, Mubuki Mubuki. Uh And it is definitely IDM, but it's IDM as um, informed by what was going on in the United Kingdom, particularly London in 1991, which was breakbeat hardcore. So while it's not exactly hardcore, the entire thing is chopped up, cut up, messed with breakbeats. And it's a lot of fun, and it sounds like 1991, though, not quite the way you'd remember if you were there. Uh, what we heard today, though, was um, <clears throat> many years later, in the late 1990s, from their very um, diverse album, Rest Proof Clockwork, that is possibly the most chill track on there, uh, buddy. Excuse me, which has been in my record bag in one way or another, going all the way back to the vinyl era. And it's always been a pain in the butt to mix, because it's in 6-4 time. Uh, we followed Plaid with uh, Control X, Wires. That is another song I don't play terribly often, because I have a great love for it, but um, if I can find a way to work it in, I will. Uh, Control X, of course, is Matt Haynes, who is a fellow who records under a host of names. Um, he did a brilliant ambient album on Instinct's uh, ambient sub-label, Instinct Ambient, in 1995, called To Abort Transmission, which is a spectacular album that has remained annoyingly expensive on the used market for a good 20-something years now. Um, <clears throat> and then in 1999, he did a more uh, breakbeat um, and up-tempo, arguably dance floor-driven album um, called Adam Jack. But Adam Jack actually has a bunch of tracks that were released far uh, in the past. It came out, as I said, in... Um, uh, 99, but the song that I played tonight, Wires, is from a 1995 12-inch um, <clears throat> called Pay It Back. And what that is is three remixes of Pay It Back, which are breakbeats that are fine, whatever, I hardly remember them. And that track right there, Wires, which is um, what a piece of music that is. Just sprawling, spaced out, dubby, uh, heavily resonated analog synthesizer going through the whole thing. And most significantly, it has uh, dialogue, which is uh, lifted from the 1953 science fiction film, It Came From Outer Space. Now, the significant thing about that film, besides the fact that it was uh, during an era of all sorts of incredibly cheesy um, science fiction films, if you ever want to See, uh, uh, have a chuckle, watch some uh, 50s science fiction. I mean, some of it's amazing, but a lot of it was um, absolute B-movie dreck. But in the midst of that, uh, It Came From Outer Space is uh, definitely one of the absolute classics. And significantly, besides the fact that it was very ahead of its time, it was actually, I think, an early 3D movie, but that's not the reason to see it. 
Um, the original script was penned by uh, one Mr. Ray Bradbury, who is one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, full stop. As a matter of fact, I would go farther and say one of the great authors of the 20th century. And Ray Bradbury has an had, the man is long gone, he actually was born in 1920, if I'm not mistaken. He had an absolute gift for writing dialogue, like few others could, both in his uh, short stories and novels, which most American, uh, at least in, when I grew up in the 20th century, most uh, American uh, middle school and maybe high school students had to read some Bradbury, um, which is really quite a piece of work, because I got to tell you, Bradbury, uh, his outlook was very dark, and wow, that was some heavy shit to foist on a seventh grader. That's a separate issue, though. Um, but similarly, uh, his uh, knack for writing dialogue far beyond anything that you would ever get in most Hollywood films carried through to his uh, screenwriting. Now, the problem was is he wrote an absolutely brilliant script that would have been a better movie artistically, but the <clears throat> without getting too deep into the plot to a 1953 science fiction film, the core difference between the Bradbury version and the final version is that you never actually see the science fiction alien monster. It's just there in the background. You see people react to it, but you never see it. And the whole thing is a psychological thriller of almost Hitchcockian uh, scope in that you don't actually know if it's real until the very end when it becomes clear. They show the monster in the version they actually made because, you know, it was Hollywood and they wanted to give the people a show. And um, they also rearranged the plot, cut out large parts of uh, his original script, changed things, added dialogue. But they did include uh, not insubstantial amount of his original dialogue. And wow, if you watch the film with that in mind, you could practically tell which bits of dialogue were written by Bradbury and which were written by, you know, a panel of uh, Hollywood, um, I don't know, uh, stuff suits in the early 1950s. At least if you're a film nerd like I am. And um, it actually turns out there have been a number of electronic musicians that have sampled dialogue from that film. It came from outer space, including the very first release on the uh, storied British drum and bass label, Moving Shadow, which is by a uh, incongruous collective known as Earth Leakage Trip. Uh, all the way uh, in, I think, 1991, um, they put out uh, their uh, Psychotronic EP, which is the first released on uh, Moving Shadow. They have a song in there called Over 92, which has a very upset guy talking about people getting um, incredibly irritated when the temperature gets too hot, and that is lifted directly from the same film. And I'm sure there are other two examples. Those are the ones that I happen to have in the back of my mind. <clears throat> so with that said, Control Wires, I'm sorry, Control X's Wires is in the running for easily, it's in my, I don't know, I don't do numerics, but we'll say it's easily in uh, my top 100 electronic music tracks of all time, probably in the top 50, possibly in the top 25, I don't know. Uh, I don't play it terribly often, but it was working with what I did today, so I found a way to mix it in. Uh, follow Control X with Signs of Life, who spells it in leak speak because he can. Um, <clears throat> that was Astral Alignment, which is from his brand new album, the Age of um, excuse me, the Age of Cinematics, and that's or I'm sorry, Cymatics, C Y M A T I C S. Me, I'm talking about cinematics because I was just ranting about film. Uh, that just came out uh, in this January um, on uh, uh, 
Sin Feyre Records, which is an independent web label. I don't know a damn thing about them, but they have a band camp. Uh, They put out a bunch of new school ambient that I like, like Ascendant, Fourth Dimension, who I played tonight, Signs of Life, One Arc Degree, uh, Echo Season, um, and a couple others I have not heard of, but at least half, three quarters of the artists I just mentioned, I've played on this show. Uh, And I'm not... It's, it's a little tough to tell, particularly after, you know, a year of things like COVID lockdown and the fact that even if we were all free to move about the cabin, um, so to speak, there aren't too many ambient festivals outside of some of the major, major, particularly here in the United States, where you were to try to explain ambient music to the average American and they would look at you like a dog that has just been shown a card trick. Uh, However, internationally, there are a handful of uh, ambient festivals. The most famous, probably, is in Tromsø, Norway, uh, which is an island located 500 miles inside the Arctic Circle, uh, and the Norwegians saw fit to put a um, rather large city there, but most significantly, it's home to the most famous ambient composer in the world, Mr. Geir Jensen. Um, and it's not, the festival isn't really happened because of Gear Jensen. He's actually an infamously uh, eccentric character uh, and can be a bit difficult to work with. You know, most geniuses are. Uh, but there is a large enough um, <clears throat> draw to that place, which is, it's 500 miles in the Arctic Circle, which means in the middle of summer, first of all, the sun doesn't set, but also it's quite balmy and nice there. Um, they have a very large ambient um, festival there at some point in the summer. However, uh, Norway is an incredibly expensive place to visit. It's incredibly beautiful, don't get me wrong. It's an um, ethereally beautiful country full of um, a population that all looks like they just walked off the cover of a um, uh, fashion magazine. And uh, Tromsø is even more so expensive because it's an island 500 miles inside the Arctic Circle. And if you want to go to the Ambient Festival there, I recommend booking your tickets now. Um <clears throat> That said, the point I'm getting at here is um, it's kind of hard to tell. I don't have like things like sales numbers. Um, I kind of think we're in like a, a resurgence of uh, ambient music in a way that I don't think has happened in a good 25 years, and I'm not entirely sure why. But it seems like I'm seeing a lot of new and prolific ambient artists, many of whom are, as I said, located in Eastern Europe, but also labels, um, including the um, incredibly easy to pronounce uh, Sinfera. Uh, we followed Signs of Life with Boards of Canada. That was See You Later, which is from their High Scores, uh, excuse me, uh, High Scores EP that came out in 1996 on Scam, but like most people, I don't have the 96 pressing, and I didn't have it until far later. I have the 99 pressing when they finally decided to do wide distribution. Um, and then they did a re-release. Uh, they remastered it, uh, which is funny because um, remastering an artist like uh, Boards of Kando strokes strikes me as very funny because a good chunk of their sound is how lo-fi they are, so what the hell are you remastering? Um they did do a remastered web release in 2014, and I picked that up as well. Uh, however, there is, a, I think, a slightly different version of that, which is on their Tuism album, um, which goes all the way back to 1995 on their own label. Good luck getting a copy of that. I, like most sane people, have the 2002 pressing because the repeated story here with Boards of Canada is they've been at it for bloody ever. Uh, a lot of their early material was released in an incredibly small quantity and basically given out to their friends. Um and those that have uh, precious few copies that have been on the um, 
secondhand market sell for a king's ransom because boards of Canada have a cult like falling unlike none other. Uh, we followed Boards of Canada with uh, Naked Funk. That was Billy. That is from their album Valium, which came out back in 1996. Naked Funk is um, a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a uh, group of dudes uh, who um, put out uh, two uh, very organic trip-hop albums in the 1990s. They did Valium in 96 and Evolution Ending in 1998, both on the UK label Pussyfoot. Uh, which is run by Howie B. Um, I don't play that one terribly often um, for several reasons, but it worked with what I was doing tonight. I was kind of trying to walk a tightrope between, well, three things, really. Uh, a fair amount of ambient, um, a not insubstantial amount of IDM going into experimental, and then little bits of, like, more conventional trip-hop and down-tempo to glue the whole thing together. Uh, followed Naked Funk with Marco Bailey. That was beaming the downbeat mix. That is relatively new school. That is from um, John Digweed's compilation from 10 years ago called Structures 2, which is a sprawling web release, which is, I think, two mixes uh, done by him. The Blissed Out Electronica mix, the Live from Avalon Los Angeles mix, and then, um, un <laughs> this is literally the name of it, Unmixed Bedrock Exclusives DJ Friendly. And off there, I pulled the... Um, Marco Bailey mix there. Um, Marco Bailey, I think, is primarily a, I don't know, hands-in-the-air trance artist, or maybe not. I think he actually made kind of pounding Eurotechno. I know I'm not a particularly big fan of whatever he does most of the time, but I like that track right there. Followed Marco Bailey with Dr. Toast. That was The Way of Truth and Love. That is from his, uh, well, that is from Screw You, It's Not on Discogs, which does not super surprise me. Uh, fortunately, Dr. Toast has a band camp. Um which is where I got his entire catalog. That is from his, um, let me see, is the album Gravity is Quiet? Uh, I guess we're not going to know, thanks. Um, no, it's from Oz So Late, uh, which he put out in, please help me out there, there, all the way back in 04. Dr. Toast put out all of his material really in the aughts, and then he has subsequently re-released all of it on Bandcamp. Uh, by the way, Bandcamp has a, Friday event going on right now. This show is in no way sponsored by Vancamp, but if you want to get music, apparently now's the time. Uh, we followed Dr. Toast with Blackfish. That was Sonar. That is from their album Pole Navigation, which came out late 2001. And I have described this album a great many times in this show. It is the, um, I think the, uh, it's not Patient Zero, but it's the canonical example of British, I'm sorry, of German downtempo as produced with the uh, sonic palette of uh, minimal tech house, which was very much a huge thing in 2001. And while pole navigation to me is kind of the, um, the signature example of that, there are of course a great many others, but uh, the songwriting on pole navigation uh, elevates it to the point that here we are almost 20 years later and I'm still playing tracks off it. Followed Blackfish with pentatonic spelled with a K. Uh, that was Catalonia which is a fairly long track right there, but that is from their um, uh, Autonomous Series 1 uh, EP that came out all the way back in 1993. Um, they did a web... I'm sorry, they did a vinyl release, and then they did a frustratingly difficult-to-get CD release, which you can now pick up at Discogs for over $30, because screw you. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want a mint copy, it's 50 British pounds. Ow, my head. Um... <clears throat> 
Fortunately, I have that in flax. Uh, Panatonic, of course, is uh, uh, Simon Bro uh, Bowring. I always want to call him Browning, but it's not. It's Bowring. Um, he works primarily under the name Pentatonic, but he's done a bunch of other things. Uh, he was very active in the early um, 90s uh, in his native UK and then did nothing for uh, upwards of a dozen years, uh, coming out with um, a new single in 2006, a new album in 2008, and then <clears throat> a bunch of web releases in 2011. Uh, Follow Pentatonic with Ace Dana, Mr. Vincent Villieux, the main man behind Ultima Records. That was Aftermath 03, which is from, oddly enough, uh, his uh, Aftermath uh, ambient album, which is Aftermath ambient, um, excuse me, Archives of Peace that came out in uh, 2003. That is the third track on it. It's seven tracks, Aftermath 1 through 7. Uh, Follow Aestana with Trip Switch. That was Concentric Circles, which is from his album Geometry that came out all the way back in 2010. Trip Switch is um, a, another British fella, uh, Nick Brennan. Uh, he is quite prolific. He put out Circuit Breaker in 2005, Geometry in 2010, and then a pile of web releases, Strange Parallels, uh, Collider, Remixes, uh, Vagabond, and... Um, just last year, he put out Memento Mori. So unlike some of the artists I've discussed in the show at great length, he is still at it. Uh, Fall Trip Switch with Chaos Control. That was Ethereal Ecstasy, which is from the album uh, Miracle Mysterium that came out in 2014, but has some cover art that you would honestly think it came out in 1995. It really looks like a 1995 Psytrance album, which is funny because it's deep, dubby, down-tempo um, Sometimes with remarkably irregular beat structure, like the song I played tonight, and little bits of drum and bass thrown in. Uh, Chaos Control is um, uh, uh, Brennan Murphy and Roger uh, Groendyke. Um, significantly, uh, one of them uh, records under the name uh, Roger does as Mr. Chiller, Mr. Chill apostrophe R. And I played one of his songs on my show at some point in the last year, and complained bitterly about it. What a cheesy name I thought that was, and I still do, but you know what? They make good enough music, so I'm going to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, <clears throat> we then follow that with Transcends 2003, which is from their uh, album, or EP, rally. They're uh, on uh, Ninja Tunes experimental sublabel, Entone, that came out in late 1994. It's just called 2001, and it's so funny because, at, particularly as the 90s wore on, there was a global fixation and fascination with the fact that our year was going to be changing all four digits and this had all sorts of effects on um, pop culture and culture in general and um, it was fairly common to have a lot of things have things like 2000 whatever in the name and in 94 Transcend put out 2001 and it's four tracks 2001, 2, 3 and 5 there's no 04 because screw you um or at least there isn't on that release. And uh, one of them, I think it's 2001, the title track. I have played in all sorts of forms. I think I picked it up on a Ninja Tune compilation sometime in the mid to late 1990s. But that particular one, 2003, I don't think I've ever played that uh, before, particularly on this show. Uh, it's um, It does have a beat if you let it play long enough, but it's decidedly beatless on either end for the, most of the track. And then we close things out tonight with a track I started talking about, The Knife from Off to On from their 2006 album, Silent Shout, <clears throat> which, as I said for me, defined 2006 and the mid-aughts more than just about anything. 
It is the fourth album by uh, the uh, siblings, uh, Drager, Drager, I never know how to pronounce their name, uh, Karen and Olaf. Karen went on to do solo work uh, as Fever Ray and honestly was arguably even better than what she did with her brother. Uh, they did a pile of albums. Um, they did uh, the eponymous one from 2001. They did a soundtrack from 2003, which is okay, I guess. They did deep cuts from 03. Uh, which has their incredibly famous, unbelievably infectious song, it, heart, uh, Heartbeats, on it, which to this day I think is the most favorite thing they've ever done. Uh, and then in uh, 2006, they removed most of the pop uh, aspects of their quirky, oddball, left-field, incredibly strange, just-beneath-the-surface synth-pop sound and just got weird with it. I mean, it's still synth, synthy music. There's lots of vocals, but the entire thing is constructed around running as many strange effects on uh, Karen's vocals as possible. And it's possibly their farthest-reaching work. I mean, Deep Cuts is the one everyone knows, primarily because of Heartbeats, and I love Deep Cuts, and I love Heartbeats. I don't play it terribly often. I haven't played it in years, in fact. Um, but uh, the eccentric and <clears throat> ultimately experimental I'm sorry, successful experiment, experimental nature of, um, I should really get a drink of water, shouldn't I? Of Silent Shout is what, to me, um, really uh, exemplifies the pinnacle of what the knife has done as artists. Also, I'm going to be real with you, <clears throat> it's also kind of when they peaked. I mean, the follow-up Fever Ray from a couple of years later is even better. Um, but they've done three albums since then, Shaking the Habitual, Shaking Up Versions, and Live at the Terminal, and... I don't really like any of them. But it may be that I'm just kind of done with the knife at this point. I like what I like, and I'm not really looking to pick up anything new uh, <clears throat> about them. Uh, that said, that track right there, um, and it's so funny. I don't know why they're showing the shitty version that is not of the right track list. Um, uh, uh, From Off to On is in the, in the middle of the album. It's track eight of 11, um, but it's really on the second half of it in terms of the feel of the album, and you can kind of sense that. Um, I mean, it's more or less beatless. It's just the uh, the two Swedish siblings there singing theoretically in harmony uh, some rather odd effects um, through some rather odd effects with um, some uh, fairly unprocessed analog synthesizers on top of them. Um, and the lyrics are everything that one would come to expect uh, from The Knife, which is... Vaguely consistent, um, but also incredibly strange. I mean, it's basically a story of them wanting to get home uh, and turn on the television and zonk out and enjoy it. But it's as if it's told from the perspective of a schizophrenic. It's just completely insane, as is everything that the knife does, ultimately. Um, <clears throat> and what a way to end a set. I'm Knuckle Dragger. This has been a special, we are going to push the experimental lever about as far as we can, edition of Testone. If you enjoyed what you heard, I do this every Friday. 10 p.m. to midnight, invariably later, here on Mixler.com. I will be back next week for more of the same, only decidedly different. Thank you for listening.